Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Psalm chapter 11 tonight. We are going to read Psalm 11 and Psalm 12 tonight because they do kind of go together. We don't know the particular circumstances that inspired David to write these words, but one more time you can see that he's under some concern, some affliction. And really these psalms are as current today as they've ever been. David is going to say that his society, his culture, his kingship, which was under the law of God, all of that he's going to refer to as the foundations. These are the foundational principles, the foundational rocks on which the culture and society of Israel is built. And if that foundation is falling apart, then where do we turn? Where do the righteous go if the godly foundation has been upended? And I think we can all ask that question still today. Where do the righteous go when the foundations of our society have been turned upside down and when it seems that the wicked are prevailing at every turn? And David's answer is right at the beginning of Psalm 11. He says, I take refuge in the Lord. When everything around me has fallen apart, when everything around me makes no more sense, when it looks like the wicked are prospering, when it looks like the foundations are falling apart, I take refuge in the Lord. That's the place that I run. That's the place that I find my protection, my hiding place. And it's interesting reading these psalms. Sometimes I think we get the impression that ancient Israel under a king who is a man after God's own heart, we get the sense that they must have just been in constant peace and prosperity, that God had to be blessing that nation and caring for that nation. And I think we forget this fundamental reality that kingdoms come and go, centuries come and go. The one thing that doesn't change, even as ages change, from the Bronze Age to the Industrial Age, now the Digital and Information Age. The one thing that doesn't change in all of that is that the heart of men is still wicked. It was wicked before the flood. It's turned wicked again after the flood. It's been wicked ever since the Garden of Eden, and that just doesn't change. All that's changed is our tools with which we accomplish our evil. We're much more adept and much more well-supplied in order to commit our evil acts. All you have to do is think about the proclivity of wickedness that exists on the Internet, and that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It's just a better tool for the depraved heart of man to express itself. And so that's the 
milieu that David finds himself in. He is in some kind of trouble yet again, and the advice that he's getting, apparently from those around him, apparently from the people who are cowering away from the onslaught of evil that is coming at them, the advice David is getting is, protect yourself, run, hide. And so he says, in the Lord, I run and hide. In the Lord, I take my refuge. How can you say to my soul? Now, David is speaking to the generalized other, the you that he's putting it out there. You who are not me. How can you say to me, to my soul, run away? Flee as a bird to your mountain. That's a perfect example. If a bird wants to get away from you, a bird can fly up onto a mountain that you can't climb. He can get up on the top of a craggy cliff and you can't get to him. And so the advice he's getting here is run away from your troubles, run away from your enemies, go and hide yourself, put yourself in your house, in your castle, and put your guards around you and just escape what's going on. Flee as a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string. So it's a perfect description of somebody who's getting ready to shoot an arrow at you. They're going to try to shoot you down, to mow you down. In fact, the next line says, to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. What's going on today? It's always been the way that the unrighteous of the world are not content to just live and let live where the righteous are concerned. Because the righteous being on the planet is like a big neon sign reminding the wicked that God exists and that judgment exists, the response of the wicked is to try to eliminate the righteous. If they could have arrows or guns or riots and fire, whatever it takes, just shut the righteous up. We are certainly living in a time right now where any kind of alternate opinion is not allowed. Mm. We're being given talking points that are the acceptable talking points. And for heaven's sake, Joe Biden has even attempted to start a ministry of truth to try to counteract whatever the government thinks is misinformation. Well, that kind of thought process, that kind of Quieting that kind of destruction of righteousness within a society is likened here to the wicked who are bending their bow, making ready their arrow upon a string so that they can shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. So you get the two sides there. They are in their darkness and they're shooting at the righteous because they're trying to stop the righteousness of God that holds them guilty. And so the questioner continues in verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, that's why I began by defining the foundations. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Seems like a very contemporary question. If the foundations of righteousness, let's see, here in America, 250 years ago, some men got together and created a constitution that was based on ideas like men are given unalienable rights from their creator. 
But now those rights are being systematically taken away by other people who simply don't agree. And so the foundations are being destroyed. The only reason that I mention that in modern America is to say it's always been that way. It was that way 1,000 BC, back in David's time, that those who were wicked within Israel, those who were wicked outside of Israel, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of David, the kings of other nations, the Gentile nations, everybody was against David because David was a righteous man, a man after God's own heart. And if the foundational principles on which a society is built, if the Constitution in America's case, if the law of God in Israel's case, if those things are undermined, if those things are set aside, well, then pandemonium breaks out. And so the question is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So that's why David began by answering the question. He gives us the question after he gives us the answer. The answer is, I run to God. The answer is, I hide in God. I take my refuge in the Lord. Because if the foundations of the society are destroyed, that's the only place the righteous can go. And so starting in verse 4, David starts exalting God and talking about why he can run to God, why he can trust God, even as the society around him seems to be falling apart. And I think, yet again, continuing to make the application, that this is also our answer. Because we as Christian people sometimes can feel very, very isolated in this increasingly wicked and crazy society and world in which we live. Notice, by the way, that the answer is not, what are the righteous going to do? Well, we need to change society. We need to fix society. That's, that's not the answer. The answer is trust in God. He knows what he's doing. The Lord, verse 4 says, is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. Why does David mention the throne? Because God is the king sitting on his throne. He's the sovereign ruler. He does whatever he pleases. Therefore, the craziness of this world, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of David, cannot prevail over David unless God allows them to do so. So he's so convinced of Yahweh's rulership and sovereignty over all things and all people that he can say, I'll take my refuge in the Lord because... The Lord right now is in his holy temple, not just a temple, but in his holy temple, his completely separate temple where only righteousness, only holiness exists, where the evil of men and the evil of this world do not encroach. The Lord is in his holy temple and his throne is in heaven. The troubles that are going on, between men, the machinations of human beings, the warfare, the greed, the ugliness of people, is taking place here on earth. But I take my refuge in God because God is in heaven, untouched by the foolishness of men. Remember what we read last week, that God reminds men that they are just men. You're only men. That's all you are. You're just 
creatures. You don't have the power or the ability or the righteousness or the sovereignty or the forethought or the power that God has. And God is in his holy temple and Yahweh's throne is in heaven. And his eyes behold, in other words, he sees it. He sees the wickedness of men. He's aware of it. He beholds it. But then I love how David describes it. His eyelids test the sons of men. If you're really looking at something intently, if you're really staring at something, your eyelids come down. You start squinting a bit. You kind of concentrate on them. The people on the internet could not see me just now concentrating at Tom. It was frightening, wasn't it? (laughs) And so that's what the Lord does. He looks intently at these people in their evil, in their wickedness, and his eyelids try them. That word test there is try them. He is the one who is going to judge them. He is the one who assesses the righteous and the evil. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. He's the one who puts all men on trial. I think I've told this story many times, and yet you can't stop me. I'm going to tell it again. Uh, There used to be a bumper sticker back when I was in college, thereabouts. But it used to say, try Jesus. That was a movement that was going on for a while. It was an evangelistic movement to try to get people to come to church and, and try it. You know, see what you think. Try Jesus. And even back then, in my limited theological capabilities and understanding. Even back then, I remember being repulsed by that bumper sticker because I immediately thought, you don't try Jesus. He tries you. He's not on trial. You are. The psalm says it right here. It is God who tries, who tests the righteous and the wicked. He's the one who's making those divisions. He's the one who is going to reward the righteous and judge the wicked appropriately. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, God's soul hates. There's another more contemporary phrase that's used in the church these days, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Right here it says, he hates the sinner. In fact, the soul of God, his very inward being, hates those who love violence. So he is testing the righteous. He is testing the violent. He's going to pour out judgment on the violent because in his holiness, that's why he's in his holy temple, and that's also why he's on the throne, because he's both holy and he's a judge, which means he's going to judge the wicked who appear to be getting away with whatever they're getting away with in their wickedness on the planet right now. And the proper answer is not run and hide from them. The proper answer is stand up for God. Put your confidence in God. Take your refuge in God, regardless of what's going on in the society, regardless of whether it looks like the wicked are prevailing, regardless of how crazy and genuinely stupid this world gets. But it's always been crazy, and it's always been stupid. I'm astounded that God hasn't poured out another flood yet. Mm -hmm. That's just grace. 
The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain. The NASB says he will rain snares. Some of your translations will say he will rain coals because the word can be translated either way. Contextually, coals might be better. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals of fire and brimstone, which certainly harkens back to Sodom and Gomorrah and God pouring out hail and coals of fire, brimstone, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities of the plains, because of their wickedness. And so David may be hearkening back here to that historic event to say, look, God has done it. You've already seen him do it. You know it's part of your history that he has destroyed the cities of the wicked. And since you know that's happened, you know it's going to happen again. He's going to do it. After all, he has done it. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone. And burning wind will be the portion of their cup. What they're left to consume, what they're left to drink, is burning wind. If that sounds familiar, we've just been reading about that in the book of Revelation. It is part of God's consistent punishment that when he wants to judge people he withholds the rain he withholds the cool winds and he lets them be burned and scorched by heat and wind fire and brimstone and burning wind will be will be the portion of their cup why for the lord yahweh is righteous even as god is pouring out his punishment even as God is judging the wicked, even as he is bringing torment on the wicked, the wicked assume that that's not fair. In humanistic terms, that's just not right. That's not fair. How can God do that? And so the wicked, the unjust, the unrighteous will judge God according to their own standards. And say, well, we're right. My standard is the right standard. My standard is the good standard. And your God is a monster. Because if your God, especially if he picks and chooses, that's not right. That's not fair. And so David makes it very clear here that even as God is pouring out fire, brimstone, burning wind, that none of that diminishes the righteousness of God. The holiness of God is intact, he's in his holy temple. He's sitting on the throne. He's the righteous judge. And even as he's pouring out his judgment, nothing about his righteousness is diminished because Yahweh is righteous. Therefore, whatever he does is righteous. He is holy. Therefore, whatever he does is holy. He is the one who is ultimately always right. Therefore, whatever he does is right. Even if we, in our sinful state, don't understand or perceive the rightness of it. And the whole wicked world does not perceive the rightness of God treating people like that. The Lord is righteous. And he loves righteousness. That, by the way, is in contrast to the fact that he hates, his soul hates those who are violent, those who love violence, those who are wicked. 
So the Lord loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. That's fundamental to who God is. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright, since the wicked are going to be fire and brimstone, burning wind, on the other hand, the righteous are going to see his face. Won't that be a great day? Oh, yes. I long for that day when I'm going to see him face to face. When our faith becomes sight, when we stand before him and feel actual acceptance and probably for the first time in our lives know what genuine, unconditional acceptance and love feels like. What a great day. Especially if you get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want that. Well, David does too and says the upright are going to stand before him in acceptance They're going to see his face. So this whole psalm is about the fact that God sees, he looks, he looks intently. He squints when he looks, and he knows the righteous, and he knows the unrighteous, and he will ultimately judge and make a difference between the righteous and the unjust. Therefore, when we see the injustice of this world, our response should be, run to God. Take your refuge in God. You can't change everybody here on this planet because you can't change anybody from the inside. You can't alter their thinking. You can't change their morality. You can't change their character. And therefore, we endure our time here on this wicked planet. But our refuge, the place we run, is not to run away from them. It's to run to God, to run toward righteousness. And that takes us to the next psalm, which has a superscript on it. I didn't read the superscript on Psalm 11, which was for the choir director, a psalm of David. And in fact, the words a psalm are not even in the original writing. It was just for the choir director of David. Just here, David wrote this. Give it to the choir director. You figure it out. (laughs) This one is for the choir director upon an eight-string lyre. In other words, it's on a a more bass instrument, something that's an octave lower than a typical lyre. This is also a psalm of David. And you'll see how quickly it follows this same line of thought that we've seen in Psalm 11. Because it starts with the word, Help! Help, Lord! For the godly man... The righteous man, the upright man, ceases to be. Okay, so last psalm, we saw that the unrighteous and the wicked seem to just be running rampant and fighting against the righteous. Here he's saying, but where are those righteous? Where are the really upright people? It's hard to find them anymore. I got an email, I won't mention any names, And they've been out visiting churches. Now, I know that I say this, but for 21 years, on most Sundays, I've been here. I'm standing here in this pulpit. I'm not out visiting churches. But it's always sort of validation when I hear from somebody who has been visiting churches. They, in their email, said to me, it's a wasteland out there. Mm. Those were their words. Mm -hmm. It's just spiritually vacuous in so much of the world out there. 
that judgment was based on the fact that people just aren't paying attention to the Bible. There's a lot of entertainment. There's a lot of circuses out there that are called churches, go by the nickname of churches, just entertainment venues that are fighting for that entertainment dollar you've got in your wallet. And so sometimes it does feel like, where are the righteous people? Where are the upright people? Christianity in this world can feel very, very lonely. The only place to run then, as David demonstrates again, is to God. Help, God. Help, Lord. Help, Yahweh. Because the godly man ceases to be. David is obviously surrounded and overwhelmed by the wickedness of the humans around him. And the faithful disappear from the sons of men. By the way, that word faithful there is the Hebrew word aman. Usually when we talk about the word aman, it's in reference to Abraham. Abraham believed God. God counted it to him for righteousness. And that is the word aman from which we get amen. So basically it's Abraham amened God. God said some things to Abraham. Abram believed it, amened God, and God counted that belief in what he had said for righteousness in Abraham's sake. Those are the kind of people that David is referring to here. The people who amen God, the people who listen to the word of God and live by the word of God, the people who understand the law of God, who understand the righteous kingship of God, the people who are willing to get on their face before God, the people who amen God, disappear. Where are those people? That was David's question. The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Here is what their faithlessness looks like. This is why David knows they aren't faithful men. They speak falsehood to one another, so they lie to one another, knowing that they're lying, saying things that are not true, like that men can become women or that men can become pregnant. Just thought I'd throw that in, a little social commentary there, just to show you that it's still true that people speak falsehoods and then tell you that you can't disagree with that falsehood. Because lies and falsehood just absolutely permeate the world these days. So that means there's faithlessness in the world. Where are the faithful amening people? They speak falsehoods to one another and with flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak to each other. Tom, if you would, real click, real click, click it, if you would, click your iPad there. Real quick, look up Romans 16, 18, because Paul picks up that very thought. Old Testament or new, this idea of flattering lips, which means lying to people in a way that you give the impression that you're on their side and you're complimenting them. And you're complimenting them and encouraging them to join you in your wickedness. And that's what flattering lips are. You got it, Tom? Yes. Romans 16, 18. What does that say? For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
So those kind of people are described by Paul as being people who do not worship Christ, demonstrated by the fact that they're willing to use their lips, their unclean lips. They're willing to use their lying lips to accomplish their own greed. David here uses it as a demonstration that they are not faithful people. With flattering lips and with a double heart, interesting translation there. What it means is a man who can look you in the eye and give you the impression that he believes one thing and then turn around and do and believe the opposite thing. You can't count on him. He's not consistent. He's not honest. He'll say whatever he's got to say to get himself through the moment that he's in, but then he'll turn around and do just the opposite. You know, like saying, I'm going to be a uniter. And the, okay, I got to stop that, but, but I'm just trying to show you that this is very, very current, very contemporary. Those are not faithful people. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. They'll say whatever they got to say and then turn around and say the opposite because their heart is not established in God. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things. When we get further in the book of Revelation, what we're going to see is that one of the characteristics of the false prophet is that he's going to have a mouth given to him that speaks great things. And it's a sign, it's a designation of the depth of his evil. It's not a good thing. It's very much like Nebuchadnezzar saying, isn't this great Babylon that my hands have built? And God was so unhappy with that pronouncement that he judged Nebuchadnezzar on the spot. So human beings walking around on their hind legs thinking that they're really something and boasting themselves, especially boasting against God, It's just begging for judgment, but it's the way that human beings are. The reason that Zuckerberg is one of the richest people on the planet is that he invented a website that gave every person access to their own inner narcissist so that everybody gets to say everything about themselves all the time to whoever else is out there listening. And the world has given him a tremendous amount of money because he created a platform for everybody to demonstrate every silly thing that runs through their heads. My point being, it doesn't change. The heart of man, the wickedness of man, is the same as it was forever. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things who have said, with our tongue, with our speech, with what we say, with what we think of ourselves and how we promote ourselves, with our tongue, we will prevail because our lips are our own and who is Lord over us? But isn't that a perfect description of human beings these days? I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to say whatever I want to say. I'll even get out in the streets. I will get out there and riot and protest. If there's even the slightest hint 
then I'm not going to be allowed to kill my baby at will. Okay, I did it again, didn't I? Yeah. But you get the point? Men are the same now as they've always been. The very thing that David was describing is still with us to this very day. Notice that David's demonstration, his evidence that faithful men are disappearing, the faithless are prevailing, the chief characteristic that he has mentioned several times here to demonstrate faithlessness is how you talk. What do you say? It's all about your lips. It's all about your tongue. You speak falsehoods to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart. They speak. May the Lord cut off all those flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So it's all about how you speak. It's all about what you say. It's all about the boastful pride of your heart, the ego of human beings who will use their mouth to demonstrate their faithlessness in the way that they counteract everything that is righteous and godly, in the way that they undermine the truly valid foundations, the way that they undermine all godliness in their life and in society. That is a demonstration of their faithlessness. And here David is praying that God cuts them off. Verse 5. God now responds. Because of the devastation of the afflicted. And because of the groaning of the needy. Okay, so what does that tell you about the people that David has just described? The people who are haughty, who use their tongue to lie, the double-hearted man, the faithless man. One of the results of their faithlessness is that they use their tongue to afflict people. They use their tongue in order to enrich themselves, to rob people to the point where People became poor and needy and class divisions so that you've got the very rich and you've got the very poor and the very rich have become very haughty in the way that they are parading themselves, demonstrating themselves over the weak, over the needy. And the weak and the needy have run to God and prayed to God. And because of the devastation of the afflicted, And because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise. Yeah, well, we've read that a couple times in the Psalms where David says, Arise, O God. Lift yourself up. Make yourself apparent. Show men that you are, in fact, God on your throne and that you are a righteous judge. This Affliction that goes on in the world, even to this very day, this suppression of the righteous, this proliferation of the wicked in the world is not going to go on forever because God himself here promises that because of the devastation, the wiping out of the afflicted and because of the crying and the groaning of the needy, God says, now I will arise says Yahweh, I will set him, that's the needy, that's the afflicted, I will set him in safety for which he longs. 
It's very much like David saying, I will take refuge in the Lord. Ultimately, the refuge of the needy, the refuge of the afflicted, isn't found in this world. It isn't found in newer, better laws, because invariably those newer, better laws and standards are going to be doled out and uh, adjudicated by wicked, sinful men. No matter how good the intention of any laws that men make, they're, they're ultimately corrupted and used against those who are needy and afflicted. That is the history of mankind. Every society, there's never been a utopia. There has always been an upper and a lower class. There have always been afflicted and needy people, and there have always been people who have used their lips and their pride and their arrogance and their power to lift themselves up and to rule over the needy and the afflicted. So God is going to set all that right, and he's going to set the needy and afflicted in safety the very safety for which he's longing. Don't you long for that? Don't you wish for the day when it's all set right? And now in verse 6, he's going to talk about, David's going to talk about the word of God. The words of God are pure words. Amen. Now that comes right on the back of the promise from God that he is going to set things right that he is going to hear the needy and afflicted and that he is going to set them in the safety that they are longing for. And boy, there's no place safer than finally being in heaven face to face, eye to eye with God. That's about as safe as you get right there. Mm -hmm. And he's going to judge the wicked and the unrighteous. And he said so right here. And those words, the words of Yahweh are pure words. And then to try to demonstrate how pure, how trustworthy those words are, David likens it to silver. Because you know that you can forge silver by burning off the dross until there's only the pure silver left. And that is usually done in a very heated oven. And David can't think of any greater oven than the very furnace of the earth. The very heart of the earth, the place where lava and volcanoes come up from, that's about as hot as it gets here on this planet. And so David says, this is like silver tried in the furnace of the earth seven times. So that's really pure silver. And he says, that's what the word of God is like. That kind of pure silver, that kind of purity is the kind of purity that you can trust the word of God has. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. He's talking about the needy and the afflicted. You're going to keep the needy and the afflicted. That's why the needy and the afflicted need to recognize that God is their refuge. The answer is not run away and hide yourself. The answer is not flee like a bird to your mountain because the wicked are out there taking aim at you with their arrows. The answer is run to Jesus. The answer is trust the Lord. The answer is trust the word of God. The answer is know for a certain that God who is righteous, who is in his holy temple, even now sitting on his throne, is going to set these things right. 
He is just patient and long-suffering. Sometimes, in my opinion, he's long-suffering too long. But the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, and thou, O Lord, will keep them, and thou wilt preserve him from this generation and forever. Once God is on your side, then he's on your side, and that's it. And it doesn't matter what comes here in this lifetime or in this planet, on this planet. It doesn't matter what comes in all eternity. It's very much like Paul saying, if God be for us, who can be against us? Same idea. The Lord is going to preserve those that he protects, those that he brings face to face with himself. He's going to preserve them from now, this generation, and forever. Nothing can get to them. There are no more men that are going to oppress them. No more egocentric, unrighteous, unfaithful men that are going to have their way with them because God is going to be their protection. God is going to be their refuge and their shield. And you don't get a better refuge than that. And then verse 8, describing the wicked again. And boy, is this an accurate description. The wicked strut about on every side. Boy, is that true. There's a lot of strutting going on on the planet right now. There's a whole lot of people saying, my tongue speaks these great things, and with my tongue I'm going to prevail, and my lips are my own, and nobody lords over me. Watch me strut. I do whatever I want to do because I'm the boss of everybody. There's a lot of that going on on the planet, and that is the exact opposite of the humility that God calls us to. So we, the faithful, we, the humble, what do we do? Do we resist on this planet, or do we run to God knowing that he's going to be the ultimate solution? David says God's going to be the ultimate solution. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Vileness is being exalted right now among the sons of men. And I don't just mean because of the things that have occurred in the last couple of days. I mean because as long as there have been sinful men on planet Earth, there has always been vileness on planet Earth, and it goes about strutting itself against God today just as it always has. Because men don't change. Because human beings are unrighteous and faithless and sinful And that's how the Bible describes us. And I don't even have to convince people anymore of total depravity. Mm. All I got to do is say, have you seen anything lately? Anything? Anything. Have you seen anything? Are you asleep? Have you looked at anything lately? The amount of vileness, wickedness, that I think, to some degree, we humans have just gotten used to it because it's, so pervasive. It's everywhere all the time. And so we just learn to live with it. But from God's perspective, from his holy righteous perspective, the wickedness of men is just constant and pervasive. And he's going to judge it. 
and he's going to judge it effectively. He's going to judge it much better than any of us can. So the answer again, trust in him. He is your refuge. Take heart in the fact that he knows and that he's going to protect you. Did you eat today? Yes. Got some clothes on? I'm looking at a room of people. I'm glad you're all wearing clothes. Are you in your right mind right now? Most of you. Yeah. It's, yeah. Negotiable. <laughs> but that's all the blessing of God. He's taking care of you right now. He's protecting you right now. Despite the wickedness of this world, despite the faithlessness of this world, despite the constant chatter of men, Despite the talking class that is talking to us all the time and telling us what we should think and berating us for our faith in Christ, despite the barrage of horrid opinions that come at us 24 hours a day, despite all that, we still have faith in God and we still have faith in Christ. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith and he's not going to let us go. And he's going to protect us from this generation and forever. And so we count on him. We rely on him. We trust him. Our refuge is him. And someday we're going to meet him face to face. And that will be a mighty good day. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.